Hey, everybody, it's John. And thanks to everybody who helps us out every week by going to patreon.com slash steal this beer and throwing a couple of bucks away so that we can mail beers to our guests and have some fun conversations resulting from that. So uh, if you're not already, go check it out. It's patreon.com slash steal this beer. Uh, as Cass says, a little bit goes a long way and we appreciate the support. Now, here come the sirens. Steal This Beer, a candid weekly discussion about beer, over beer, by a couple of guys that think about beer way too much. Hey y'all, it's five o'clock on Monday and we are stealing beer. I'm Augie Carton. Hey, I'm John Hall. Poor Kelly's trying to do audio tests. You're like, we're just doing it. We're just plowing right You told me you had a a... small window. We are once again fitting in because we never want to leave you guys hanging. I I think the proudest thing of Seal This Beer is eight years, 52 Mondays a year at five o'clock. No repeats. You guys a fresh new show, even though let's face it, 51 a year, boring as hell. But so I am traveling to Colorado tomorrow to be back a week from tomorrow. But John, you fly out to Colorado somewhere in between there. Yeah. So I fly out to Colorado like the day after you. I'm going to miss you by a day. And then I'm gone again. So artfully artfully dodged, Mr. Dickens, artfully dodged. You like that? Um, I'm pretty proud of you. Anyway, and somehow Kennedy managed to produce Kelly Meyer for us to talk to. So we said, fuck it. Let's jump on the air, grab a quick 45 minutes with the author of how not to start a brewery or a fucking brewery or whatever it is. And let's get with him. And, and, let's a, pod- a, and a podcast of the same name. Well, that's what actually brings Kelly to us. Kelly, I'll try to make room for you with a landing ramp like this. But our friend Aaron <laughs> ended up on your show. Aaron Gore. Yeah. Who's did already been Aaron, on the show. Yeah. Did what Aaron Gore does beautifully by putting it on everything from LinkedIn to TikTok. I hit it, <laughs> listened to it. And I said, Jesus, Kelly guy seems pretty cool. Let's have him on. Then they told me you wrote a book I actually have and had read a chapter and a half of before my bookkeeper stole it, took it home and decided to read it over a year and hasn't given it back yet because he's a very slow reader. And Justin said, I got him. So welcome to the show, man. How are Kelly you? Kelly uses a lot of long words, though. So that's does fair. he? Yeah. Is that uh, so the, the chapter I wrote read didn't feel like it was that difficult, but <laughs> my bookkeeper, who let's hope is a numbers guy, seems to be sounding out a lot of words. Yeah. Well, anyway, it does depend welcome. on your perspective. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> it, it does depend on your perspective. I don't necessarily use uh, big words or long words, but some people have a hard time with the F word, and I do use that one quite a bit. Yeah, that's a fucking problem. Not around here. Um, get that. So, so let's jump into it. So let me ask you probing questions, because the other thing is I tried when, when I found out you were coming, I tried to prep. But to be honest, what I did was go all the way back in time on the podcast. So I've listened to like the first and second episode. So I've mm-hmm. got a feel for a nascent podcast, but I don't know where you are today, except that it's it's evolved a lot to the episode with Aaron I listened to. You know what I mean? Like you can mm-hmm. tell that, oh, this is a pilot and then these are the show. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, well, I, I mean, at the end of the day, I think hopefully we all grow up as we get older and, and that wouldn't go so far as to say I'm an adult now, but 
the anger and the frustration and the willingness to burn the entire industry to the ground that I had in 2019, <laughs> that's gone somewhat. Like I actually do at this point interview people who have gone out of business with the hope that we will find out how to do it right in the future. So yes, it has evolved. I like it. Um, so what's funny is I don't, I think I was, all right, so you should know, I don't know how much you know about us and it's not your job to know us, but I've been running a bankrupt brewery for 12 years. So <laughs> I am a really weird case study for you. I am definitely trying to turn, you know, turn money into labels, employees and beer much faster than I'm turning it into profits. So it's funny when I listen to your stuff for that. But I think I was happy-go-lucky, it's all fine, nothing's going wrong until 2019. And then COVID made me really kind of miserable in life, which turned a lot of my anger towards the brewery. Your timing seems to suggest you've chilled through COVID. Let's explain that. Like, when, How did things tighten up for you that way, and what did it force upon you business-wise and view-wise that's that's made you think you've relaxed since 19 because i think i'm much more cynical since 19. you know i think in some ways well two main things or i guess three I, one i wrote the book in 19 released it in 20 then i started the podcast in 21 where i got to interview a lot of people who were in the same boat as me some people who experienced way worse than me and it was largely cathartic and it just allowed me to get it out and kind of move past it, get the anger out. But to your point, like during COVID, I did still own the brewery. I didn't sell it till September 3rd, 2021. Not that I'm counting, but uh, <laughs> yeah, that's actually oddly, my oddly very specific. best friend of the world. Yeah. That's actually my very best friends in the world's birthday. So the minute you said I was like Tom's birthday and then I was like, he's not going to understand <laughs> that reference at all. But anyway, go on. Well, yeah, I wanted to go to the fourth, but I was like, dude, Tom, you know, I went off choice. <laughs> but yeah, so, but during COVID, it all changed in the, in a way that in 19, I basically decided that what I had as a brewing operation was not a going concern and that the distributors that I worked with, no matter what I could do, there, there was no way that I could increase revenue and profitability by 30% and I needed it by 42%, right? So it just looked like, okay, let's wind this thing down. And my wife and I picked end of the lease, uh, different you know things that were going to be expiring. And I think it was August of 20. And when COVID happened, my sales went through the fucking roof. And I got yeah. sort of like, okay, two things. One, sales are way up. And secondly, you can't go find a job right now. Like no one's hiring. So <laughs> kind of screwed. I got to stay here. And I got stuck staying in the brewery for another, you know, year and a half. And mm -hmm. ultimately it, it was strong for the, for all of 20, we had our record months, our record year, but then just by that let next summer, there was a bunch of reasons why, but it, it just completely collapsed. And I just said, I got to get the hell out of here. So how much, so what's interesting there is having gone through that. I think what you just described there is universal. Um, and it was interesting at the time because I saw it through the lens of miss forecasting by Boston beer. When the mm -hmm. lockdown happened, everybody treated it like it was a snow day from school, went to breweries and stores and bought six to 10 cases of beer to live in their house with. And then a year later, everyone is kind of resenting that undrank four pack in the cellar and all that and really slowly went Don't out. Mine. And, yeah, but but you know what I mean? And people now go home at at least around here. So part of one of the things I want to talk about is 
a Texas experience versus a New Jersey experience and what's you think universal versus specific to Texas? Because especially those first episodes where you're talking to Texas breweries, I hear problems I understand, but very different set of problems and solutions than New Jersey just because of our dopey laws and our dopey distributors versus your dopey laws and your dopey distributors. Um, so I want to get there. But in the meantime, what I'm saying is then, you know, people stopped having a third beer on draft in bars because now people went home at nine instead of stayed out till one and that. So I think that's universal. But it's that uptick and that exuberance into the next summer when everybody could go outside and didn't turn into the roaring 20s is part of confusion I have about humanity because that's still my instinct. We were all trapped in our house for two years. Let's all go out and be out together all the time. Was that your experience in that 21 summer? And how do you feel that changed your kind of outlook? My experience in the summer, meaning that we kind of thought people would you, come you out. You said that, that that 20 year was amazing. And then the 21 year for various reasons tapered off again. I'm, that's kind of where I'm like, was it just people or was it something internal? No, it was predominantly the market. Um, yeah. And some of it was competition that during COVID, and I've said this many times, like I, I know of a brewery in, in San Antonio that actually the most popular brewery in San Antonio was pre-COVID losing $20,000 a month. But if you're losing $20,000 a month for the decade, which they weren't open that long, but the decade previous to COVID, but on $70,000 a month in revenue, when the EIDL happened, you just got half a million dollars as a check into your bank account. Right. And so you invested in new equipment. You planned on maybe expanding into new markets, um, maybe made your tasting room better. So competition was way tougher in that summer of 2021, simply because of a lot of people investing in like new canning lines, new products, they had new recipes because they had to have a new beer every week to get people to come to the brewery. That was a problem. And then, yeah, like you said, we all kind of thought everyone would run back out and, and be naked in the streets. And the reality is, I, I mean, and I think, to be honest, everybody I've talked to, the majority of people who just sort of change their eating and drinking habits outside the brewery or inside the brewery, outside their house, we're older. And maybe it's only 20% of the people. But if your margin's 9%, you just lost 10%. Yeah. So Fair it's, it's too much. Got it. Um, interesting. So now I'm not ready to delve into laws yet because I never get out of it once I dive. Let's <laughs> talk about, um, so let's talk about that. So I think if you asked me, and I haven't heard you talk about this a bunch, and again, my set of laws made me make a much larger brewery than I think you're often talking about. Meaning when I opened in New Jersey, the the on-premise model was forbidden. You weren't allowed to give your beer away for money in your own brewery. So it had to be sold to stores and bars. So the only way to be profitable on that was on a scale, you know, 15 barrel house or bigger, blah, 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 blah. And that's how we built ourselves. And then the laws changed a couple of years later, but, um, so that's that's kind of my pitfall. But in that world, if you asked me what I should have done better all 12 years, it's actually an HR person because 
I'm very bad at hiring people and I'm very bad at giving up on people. And I will hold on forever. And since at my size, you need a 20, 22 person staff, depending on what your ambition aspirations are. That's where I think my biggest mistake is like, if somebody asked me for your advice, what not to do and what to do, I'd be like, start, make your third employee, somebody who hires the other 50 employees so that you can do what you do and not get lost in that. Um, does that make sense to you? And, and, have you found any ways to solve that on a small scale? Because I don't think as a business, you really think about HR to like 50 employees, right? So do you, does that ring true to you? And do you have any advice for me in that area? <laughs> yeah, the, the, the hiring people is one chapter in itself of my book, because it, it's just a problem that previous to this, I owned eight fitness centers and we had 30 something employees. And the day I sold that business, I swore I'd never have another employee again. <laughs> it's a huge pain in the ass. Uh, you know, I love people, but employees aren't people. They're different, right? They're mm. they're resources. And it's just a different way of looking at it. Um, but yeah, so in your in your defense, yes, I think it's the exact same thing. I think it's even worse for eighty percent of the breweries in the United States that produce under a thousand barrels, because there's not even enough money to pay enough people to do the two different jobs. So the the owner slash operations manager slash tap room manager slash production manager slash you know supply ordering procurement guy. It's just too many hats and and HR is just, there's no room for it, you know, in his time. Yeah, especially if you're when I apologize to my staff and fellow coworkers, I'm like, look, I'm particularly good at like one or two things, but that makes people believe I will be good at other things and I'm just not. So stop thinking I can solve this problem. Um, but yeah, when you've got 50 hats and only one fits, you're fucked, right? Yeah, and you just can't hire to the other ones. It's, you know, I've always been a proponent of hire to your weaknesses and you know, you're you're strong based on your team and what you find in those smaller organizations that you know produce three to five hundred thousand dollars a year that there's you can't afford it. And if you do hire that person, it's usually an intern or someone who's willing to do an $80,000 job for $30,000 a year. And that in itself has its own problems. Cool. Uh, yeah, that, that we all agree on. Um, so let's go to it. So what, what was your capacity? You know, what, what was your volumes over the decade? You know, what were you doing production wise? How much was packaged? When did that move? Obviously you were largely packaged into COVID. And how much of that is because Texas? Well, we did expand outside of Texas, but that was until later. So we we opened the doors December, I'm sorry, January 2020, 2012. And so that was when we ultimately started with a small, uh, We I did go nano for eight months and then tore that apart, built it back into 15 barrels. Yep. And at the time it was German wheat beers. And it, strangely during the year that we, uh, went from nano to 15 barrel just in that period of time, that business model eroded uh, as far as like the viability of it, of just trying to make regular beer for regular folk. And we struggled kind of being late to the party at that point. We, I would do, you know, on average back then, probably three 15 barrel batches a month for okay. most of those early years. And then that grew to at least one a week, but that was probably the max uh, for the most of the time that I owned the breweries, you know, maybe 60 barrels a month. And it changed pretty dramatically. We did go into package 
in 14, I believe, and had some mixed results with that. And we didn't, at the smaller scale, we knew we couldn't be competitive in, in 12 ounce, you know, and I always did the spreadsheet first, which in some cases made me behind the curve because, you know, there was a brewery in San Antonio that was putting first to can and bragging about how they were canning on their cans. And, and, and they were the first in San Antonio to can and went back eight months later and realized that they'd lost money on every can that they sold because they didn't yep. do the math. Wow. I had that year. Um, I had that year. Yeah. I mean, it happens a lot. And so, so, but I did that math first and I was like, well, we can't be competitive in 12 ounce. So let's do bombers. And at the time those were still legal. <laughs> yep. <laughs> now and you popular. get in the back. Yeah. <laughs> right. But uh, so that, you know, that had a run up for it. And then you saw like everybody, like everybody else, 16, 17, 18 bombers died. So like, okay, what are we going to do? Uh, out, output definitely dropped in those years. Uh, we switched in 17 to mixed culture specifically and prime and solely. So no lab yeast in the brewery at all. Right about the time the market decided that mixed culture beers uh, were, were no longer fun and interesting or worth buying. <laughs> so, yep. <clears throat> but then doesn't in, that break your heart as as a, as a yeah. lover of beer? Doesn't like there's nothing better. The problem is there's so much bad, and I think people got, you know got afraid and then got lulled into simplicity rather than complexity. Yeah. I mean, I, I truly, as a guy who invested in it and thought it was going to grow, I realized looking back that it was a niche within a niche. And I don't think that was smart that, you know, even today craft beers, less than 13% market share of beer and mixed culture beer is going to be, you know, a small percentage of that. And so more and more people rushed into it and made some great beers. And like, like you said, some bad ones too, but there just <laughs> wasn't enough room. We weren't getting new consumers that were interested in an $18 bomber. You know, it, it's, yeah. I bet wrong. I, at, at the end of the day, I made a, made a business choice and it was not the right one. So. so did you never dabble? Did you never make proper loggers? Because when I think of Texas, so one of the things we're real or this show teaches me as we travel around a lot of the, so what I wish we had was more of a culture of kind of the omnivore beer drinker, meaning people who know they like lagers, people who know they like whatever, and then look for subtle interests around that, meaning, you know, I would need to make my Pilsner 40% of the time. Um, in reality, I need to make my double IPA 40% of the time and then could do some real fuckery, which I like to do like sours and like pastry beers and like cuisine beers and whatever, you know, to engage with those same people on, let's call it their Saturday night. And as we travel, it's the, the Southern states I find that are better about having their base habits, right? We go to places like Good Word and all these amazing places like Yazoo, and they have a culture of beer drinkers who just want a better Pilsner lager kind of thing, and then are fooling around outside that rather than people who only fool around or only drink mass market beer, which is what we have in the Northeast. I, I imagine Texas to be largely lager driven. Is that was that something you knew you were turning your back on or am I just completely wrong in my read on the state or at least you are part of it? Uh, as far as the driving force for alcohol consumption, I would agree. I would caution by saying that as far as from a craft perspective, there are very, very few that are 
made made well that are drinkable and they're popular as far as craft lagers but when i first went with my distributor in 2013 to do a ride along uh, he told me that the area between san antonio and austin was the largest osecchi's market in the world wow. at that time and so that's more what we're competing with is the mass market log i mean and Dosecchi still has a stronghold you see a modello billboard everywhere you go i mean they're selling the crap out of that beer uh, and there there aren't a lot of craft loggers that really step in there. You know, Live Oak and Austin make some fantastic ones. And you do see it, but I don't yeah. it's not as ubiquitous as it should be, in my opinion. Okay. Close. Interesting. Um, all right. So let let's shift gears a little. So if you were giving advice to people, let's say I do five thousand barrels a year down to what sounds like you were probably around a thousand. Mm-hmm. When should you commit money to you know, because like you were saying when we were talking about people, staff, and HR resources, you need kind of a, a jack of all trades person who's passionate and entrepreneur, entrepreneurial enough to want to jump in, you know, and get it all done. And then, you know, who is that person? But things like marketing are another place. Like I've never spent a dime on marketing carton. And as I realize my own limitations in that, I try to figure out how to spend those dimes. And I just always default to, nah, never mind, we're doing fine. Let's not lose that money. Have you come up with ideas and recommendations on like an amount of budget should be and a way to test whether it's working or not? Because there's nothing I hate more than the idea of you see small breweries do shit like sponsor a Facebook page they immediately did get discredited by guys like me because you see sponsored next to their ad. And then you know they're getting some metric that was like 10,000 eyes saw this. <laughs> but did those 10,000 eyes buy a single fucking glass of beer in the brewery? You know what I mean? So do, have you developed any of that kind of advice or any thinking on that area of the thing of how to do it, you know, where, where that money is well spent versus where it's horribly spent either way? Well, to be honest, keep in mind I'm contrarian by nature, but I absolutely, you're right at home on this show. <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely hate those metrics, and I think the more brewery businesses and businesses in general that I look at, but let's since we're talking about breweries specifically, there are so many moving parts that to say a percentage of revenue should be dedicated to X is it, it just doesn't work. I guess would be the best way to say it. And so I've been asked this question many times. So a lot of times I'll help you know, the helm brewers that are looking to do a brewery and they'll send me their business plan and they just have these arbitrary numbers and I ask where they came up with them. The short answer is, I think ultimately that you have to spend money on direct marketing. I do not think that Facebook ads is it at all. Uh, There's a variety of reasons for that. And I'm partially through this process of doing the podcast, I'm looking for some of those answers. And I just brought on a new advertiser for the podcast. That's a PR firm in San Francisco. And that through those conversations, I'm looking to try to dial that in because every time I've looked at it thus far, it falls apart. And I don't think it works. I've seen more ads that are not targeted correctly. And and we, like I said, have a challenging industry that because we have a 13% market share, the question is, do you want to market to the 87% of the people who drink mass marketed loggers and probably aren't going to like your IPA, or are you looking for the IPA guy that's already a fan of Treehouse or Trillium? How do you get them on yours? It's such a challenging model and such a challenging question to answer that 
I don't think I quite have an answer I would say is a law yet, but I'm looking for it. So, Speaking of Treehouse and Trillium, uh, knowing both and loving each, um, have you, do, do you often come across some magic sauce you think that's been nailed by certain of us and not by others? You know what I mean? Like, I, I know you largely spend your time talking to people about what went wrong and what could have been done differently, but are you ever like, what was there a, like for me being the 13th brewery in New Jersey of now 140 um, definitely benefits me in a lot of ways because it was just easier to get in people's brains and, you know, gave me an advantage over somebody who's trying to get their name out there in a 150 person world. Have you, do you, do you see like, secret sauce stuff like that when you look at the people who've had successes all the all the way along the way like do you think there's something to focus on if you're starting today you know with 10,000 breweries in America versus starting when I started with a th- or when you started it sounds like we started together I started um August 11th so we're within 6 months of each other but Oh Ricky's birthday I... <laughs> <Were you laughs> Nice one. With... Nice callback, Hall. Nailed it. Were you just waiting the whole time, knowing another whole time? Just whole, yeah, Is that just why thought, you're yeah, not that's... asking a single question? You're like, somebody's <laughs> gonna say a date. I feel, I feel oh. like you guys uh, have this, have this well done. I'm just, uh... oh, that's as believe it or not, that's as high praise as you'll ever get out of John Hall. So, so appreciate the hell out of that, Kel. Um, I'll take it. Yeah. yeah, right. But, um, but you know what I mean. So, so. So you had to do things right at our time when there were only a thousand breweries or fifteen hundred breweries in America, and what that is has to be very different with ten thousand. Have you had some kind of, you know, I keep referring to it as a secret ingredient, secret sauce, but, yeah. but is there something there in your head? Mainly on the surface, the simplest one to be timing and timing and hype, and so being early helps a lot. And, you know, I don't have a lot of experience drinking Treehouse and Trillium. So, you know, I'll, I'll defer to your judgment on what their quality has been like. Hard not but, to like them. They're both lovely sugar beers. Can't, can't get so, mad at them. So the real question would be like, where, how many times and how badly did they miss? And I definitely don't want to dig into calling people out and being like, hey, look, this brewery makes shitty beer. But there are a lot of breweries that don't make great beer empirically. And we're talking about off flavors mm-hmm. or, um, you know, bad hopping additions or flavors that just don't mix together that I'll still see positive reviews for not only that beer, but for the brewery itself from someone I know who has tasted that beer. And I think timing and, and hype goes a long way towards that. The other side, throughout this process, I've started looking outside the industry a lot and like who's doing well in RTDs, what's going on in the seltzer market and who's been able to grow a brand and an idea to a 50, 50 state distribution footprint quickly because you're not seeing that in beer anymore. And when you listen to those people talk, Grant, some are full of shit, but they, they're they t- approaching it from a business perspective in a way that most of the brewery owners that I know are not. And like there was a brewery in Canada that just closed a year ago that was, or I'm sorry, a few months ago that I listened to an interview they had done a year ago. And they were talking about how they were quote unquote, hoping to make lager important to the public again. You uh, talk about it. If you heard that on an earnings call from a Wall Street company, you know yeah. what I mean? You know what I love best about that is having, being friendly with one or two of the people that could actually claim to have done that, the largest being Ashley. 
there's something I'm sorry. So John, you want to explain who Ashley is? You usually Ashley like Carter of Beerstop, Ashley Carter right, right. and that's Bill the, I of, that's of why Beer Stop, part, by That's the way. why I lean it in. But if you say anything like that to Ashley, she looks at you and it's just basically in the most plain. She's like, motherfucker, it's been 90% of beer for 300 years. Yeah, it's on a 500-year winning streak. It's very <laughs> fucking important to people. Get over yourself. You know what I mean? I'm like, thanks. Oh, good reminder, Ash. Every time I'm like, so was it crazy to open a lager brewery? She's like, uh, 500 years of lager dominance. Pretty sure it's the right section of the market. I'm like, ah, well argued, my dear. Anyway, I digress mostly because I'm going to Denver, which means I'll have a slow pour in my hand tomorrow night. John, be jealous. Um... Mm. But you know what I mean? So, so I, I like that note, but the, how do you reconcile that? Like there, there is truth to the fact that if you're a great law brewery, there's some way to get in front of people, right? There's some way to make, like there's, you and I both know there's some business model that even a very small scale works. As long as your ambition is no more than I'd like to pay myself X amount of dollars and three employees, X amount of dollars. And if I sell this amount of beer, for this price, this way, it works. The problem becomes that kind of, like what we're seeing right now in New Jersey, we've lost 12 breweries this year since our governor decided not to pass a law that would have helped them. Um, but all 12 of those were people who did some expansion time to the last four years and couldn't realize the growth they needed. Um, and that's the first wave of attrition we're seeing with this new set of laws not happening and basically pulling the rug out from under our business. But like, you know what I mean? So, so there's a way to be like, no, this is enough and this is what I want to accomplish and this is how I do it. But if you're going to do that, logger's not a bad play, right? So what, <laughs> yes you know no. what I mean? Where, where's that? Exactly. So go oh, on. Yes not, yeah. Well, so I interviewed... Uh... Clint Lanier, who did the book on the first black-owned brewery in the United States. Oh, yeah. And it was interesting. He did a lot of research on what Big Beer did and and how the consolidation and straight up illegal. Now, now they're unfair tactics. They were illegal back then and like straight up. Um, oh, and it was interesting still to see. Illegal. <laughs> they just don't get caught anymore. <laughs> they, just, they just don't do it anymore. I mean, they just don't not do it anymore. Anyway, go yeah. on. Yeah. No, it's so basically it was it was very fascinating for me to look at all the different times that AB papsed back then, uh, these 40,000 barrel a year breweries, which is, you know, topping in the scale for us today. Even back then, they were getting beat up, getting bought out, getting um, squashed. And then, you know, I looked at the Red Hook story from the 80s, and it kind of happened again. It, so it there's this whole, as soon as Pilsner beer does well, they just get crushed. And I think Ashley has the right model. And, and to be tr completely transparent, I have reached out to her to interview with me to go through why it works for her and why it doesn't work for other people. Um, so that may happen. We we have connected. But as, as a distribution model, I don't think there's any way to make lager work as a small scale. Okay. I think that's fair. And I think that's makes sense for her. If I can, I don't know how hard it is to get from where you are in Texas to where she is in Denver, but... I cannot suggest strongly enough getting your ass to beer stat for that interview if you do it, sitting down. Because there are a few pleasures in craft beer in America that are better than drinking lager and bullshitting with Bill and Ashley. So well, I've had the beer, but I've not met them personally. No, but you got to record your hour episode and then spend seven hours bullshitting in that bar. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, Classic it's, move. Really bigger thing. 
Yeah, that's uh, I'm doing it tomorrow night. I'm doing it tomorrow night. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. uh, <laughs> on the first episode, I'm going to, I'm of, going to uh, a friend's wedding. I just like I'm that really you're going to show up at beer stop with your lager, and you're going to be like, "Hi, room for carton." Yeah. Hi, guys. <laughs> so, do you know where I sleep when it's not a premium weekend? <laughs> anyway, so let's get back to you. So, all right. So now your place is gone, and you're clearly so. The other thing I want to compliment, right? So, if if I was going to critique the carton business model for why it why it will never be profitable is I have zero hustle and zero ambition. I just like doing what I do. I want to do that. And I give up other people the opportunity to hustle. And when they don't hustle, no, no problem. You're clearly a hustle. We've had this podcast for eight years. We've had super hustler Brian Cass, super hustler John Hall and minor hustler Justin Kennedy involved. We've been doing it for eight years and we very carefully have never made a single dime on it outside the wonderful contributions the Patreons give us to not make money on it. You have a podcast you've had for two years with, you just talked about signing up a new sponsor. You've got great sponsorship. You get it out there. So clearly you're a person who focuses on, this is what I want to do and this is how to make money doing it. And this is the hustle I'm going to do to get that done. So, where do you do you clearly still love and care about beer? Do you stay in as a consultant or, pe or when you say people are sending you business plans? Are you is that your angle? Is that where you're going? Is there a future brewery in your mind? And what would it be like? What's what's the next five years for you? The short answer is no. If, if I want to stay married to my wife, I will not be opening another brewery um, on, in any capacity. <laughs> and I do want to, I, I would like to say on the air, I would like to stay married to my wife. Um, That's, I, so, I oh, didn't jump on that joke and usually I would. So tell her, <laughs> say, Augie, let that one slide. Anyway, go on. All right. But uh, as far as the consulting side, and this may very well change and many things in my life do, but I always say that I am I consider myself to be an expert on failure, not necessarily success. And so I don't really want to be the guy putting together a business plan that I put my seal of approval on and say that I know if you follow this, you will wind up on a beach somewhere drinking margaritas. Um, but I'm happy to look over somebody's business plan and pick it apart, which I have currently done for free for that same reason that, you know, I, I feel in some ways like I'm crushing people's dreams, even though I don't. I don't necessarily think you shouldn't open a brewery. I just think that you should temper your expectations if you do. Yeah. So, so and, I don't know. I, as far as the consulting thing, I don't, I don't see that being a viable uh, money-making thing in the future, but I always want to help where I can. What's funny is when I hear you say that, and part of, again, part of the problem with me is, and you said contradictory, you're contradictory by nature, as am I. But, you know, I'd, I I had a Wall Street background. I've done all kinds of weird things for millions of years. I worked in film production. Every person who tells you, you know, all the consultancies, your Deloitte's and your McKinsey's and all those people who tell you they can do what you're saying absolutely have nothing but a failed track record for creating new successes in businesses, right? What they do is what you're saying you do. What they do is come in and say, here's where you're wasting money. Here's where you're wasting money. Fire all these people and your books will look more profitable, right? They're never creating, here's the thing that will definitely work. Um, although when they sit down with you, that's what they tell you. They're like, if you follow our business plan, you're guaranteed success 99 out of 100 times, blah, 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 blah. But then all they're doing is carving out what they got wrong and blaming it on you. So yeah. I... I guess my question is, are yeah, you sure I was gonna that's say, is not your calling? Yeah. 
Yeah. Are you sure that's not your calling? Since that's where the actual <laughs> value added is. You write your, what did Calagio call it? The best work of fiction ever written, the business plan. Give it mm -hmm. to Kelly and just have him fucking red line. No, no. All right, start over. You know what I mean? Are you sure you're not the world's perfect editor of the fictional business plan? I do think I would be good at that. Um, at this particular time, I've got, <laughs> I, I do the podcast more for fun. And I, and I think that part of the reason that it, I've allowed it to grow as fast as it has. And, and I'm as passionate about doing that is because it, I don't need it to eat, I guess, in a way. And so, uh, again, I think, I don't know what the future holds. And I think there is some value that I can add as far as picking your business plan apart. And that, but I not sure how many people want to pay for that. So that would be an interesting piece of it too, but. Maybe, maybe send that soundbite I just gave you to Deloitte and tell them hmm. you'll you'll be the guy in their company that does that for craft breweries. Yeah, tell them Augie um, sent you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know a couple people around there. Um anyway, all right, so we are running out of time. I promise everybody to keep this to a type 45 and we don't have my blathering. But let's talk about one of the things people like when we talk about that we never really go to because I am ever evolving on my opinions of health, weight and fitness is something I think you can interesting, interestingly discuss coming from fitness to beer. And I'm not looking to talk about the BMI and all its flaws and all those things and those evolutions, but you must be aware of the at least lifestyle change for you from going to owning gyms to going to be a guy who drinks five nights a week to promote his brand. And did you have any insights there you think are worth sharing with the thieves at home about what you held on to, what you gave up, what you had to claw back as far as, you know, because if you're a guy successfully running gyms, you're definitely maintaining one level of health and fitness. And if you're a guy successfully running a brewery, you're maintaining a very different level of health and fitness. Yeah, so the, the short answer is that most things in life are a balance, meaning that sometimes it's minus 50 and sometimes it's plus 100. <laughs> but in in general, I, I still worked out most of the time pretty consistently throughout my career as a brewery owner. It would be, you know, less and I would definitely eat and drink more. And I, the heaviest I have ever been in my life was literally the week and a half after I sold the brewery because I still worked there for a month after I sold it. And I remember that. So I sold September 3rd and we went to an Oktoberfest celebration that uh, first weekend in October. And I came back and was like, this has got to change. And so I am currently 20 pounds lighter than I was that day. <laughs> and I think it's definitely a lifestyle and it's hard. And I've asked a lot of people on the podcast, like, you know, how has working industry affected your relationship to alcohol? Because it was a struggle for me to, because you, if you hang out at a, ta a tapo takeover or a pint night and you're the one guy drinking water, it's not that you can't do that, but it is weird. There's no, no doubt about it. So oh, there was definitely yeah. a lot more drinking and eating in that career. And yeah, and you just found the balance was to get your ass out of bed and do some work every morning, no matter how you felt. Yeah. One of my favorite stories was that we had this guy from, it was Italy. I don't remember where he had, it was like in town with his hanging out with some What's girl. What's his name? Augustino? Cause it's a good Italian name for a brewer. <laughs> No, <laughs> I, I now can't remember what it was. This is like five years ago, but he was, he volunteered on bottling day because he didn't have a job. And his girlfriend was like, I don't want him in my house all day. So he came over, volunteered on bottle day. 
And throughout the course of the like month and a half he worked with us, he was telling us about what a spritz was, and I'd never heard of it. So his last day, he comes in and he brings all the ingredients. He's like, I'm going to make you guys a spritz. And we tasted them, we sampled them, and I looked down at the clock, and I'm like, oh, shit, I got to go to the brewery or out of the gym. And I, ran, I went to the gym, I'm running on the treadmill, and I realized I was hammered drunk. Like I was just <laughs> drunk. Was, this is a terrible idea. And somehow I still finished the workout. So in some ways, I think the brewery made me tougher because uh, I still had to work out through my alcoholism, but I yeah. figured it out. I get it. I get it. All right. So the book breaks down into 10 quick chapters, right? So am I wrong on that? Is it 10 chapters? It's 10, 10 mistakes? Yep. 10 of the big mistakes I made, except for one. One is one I didn't make, but everybody else made. So I put it in. So. All right. So let's let's run through them real quick, just as chapter headlines. And let's let poor John get involved in this discussion for the last 10 minutes. And as you say them, I'll let John query them for you, because I imagine if I ask you what it was, you're going to give me a 20 minute answer. And if I tell you my answer, it's going to be an hour. So let's keep yeah, it tight. Yeah. John, the writer, will listen to the 10 mistakes and ask any pertinent questions, but go in chapter order. And John, this is your time to shine. Well, always. <laughs> so I'll have to pull them up because, of course, I'm going to get them out of order. But uh, the first one was uh, focus on quality over branding. Yes. Yes. He's, no, he's saying that's a mistake, John. The focus on quality over branding is a mistake. Absolutely. Okay. See, this is why I thought this would be fun. John, you right. okay with that? Nope. All Next right, chapter. <laughs> From a business perspective, you don't have much of a choice, but we can go into that another time. All right. The <laughs> second one was start small and build. So the proof of concept model going moving up to a larger facility. And that's a mistake. Mm -hmm. Go on. All right, keep going. I said I'd shut up. Go on. Mistake three was hire a guy to make beer instead of investing in a fucking brewer. Ooh. Mm. And you hear that a lot. Number four, yeah. just brew whatever is popular instead of whatever is profitable. Okay. That's yeah. my biggest mistake because it's neither popular nor profitable. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, go on. <laughs> yeah, no, Never. Tell me more about your rack beers and cream ales. Yeah. Let's, yeah let's, right. let's make an all rack beer and cream ale business in one of the most expensive states <laughs> in the 50 states. Anyway, yeah. go on. Uh, mistake five, use a mobile canner. You're saying that's a mistake. Like it. Go on. Ab absolutely. No one makes money using mobile canners. God, I wish Cass was here. Anyway, <laughs> I go know. on. I <laughs> So our engineer works uh, as our engineer the, yeah, now works for the biggest mobile canner canning in America. Yeah. As yeah. Well, the mobile canners make sales. money. Yeah. The oh, boy, do they. <laughs> yeah. I know. He's got a vacation house. Yeah. Anyway, go on. <laughs> <laughs> got a vacation house. He didn't even invite us to his wedding. We were no longer fancy enough. Anyway, go on. <laughs> I did actually put a caveat in my book that I feel bad saying this because the people that run mobile canning companies are legitimate people and I don't want to be a jerk, but right. the truth is the truth, right? Yep. So mistake six was if you fuck up, don't dump it. That's a mistake. Dump it every time. hundred percent. Yes. Okay, good. All right. I was like, I was like, I let uh, you yeah. slide on a couple of these and I know John's thinking, but that one I went, yeah, you got to dump it. You yeah. got to dump it. You can't, you can't add fruit. Anyway, go on. Mistake seven, trust distributors to sell your beer. Oh, yeah. um, Biggest mistake there is. Yep. Yeah. Uh, mistake eight was build a small, intimate tap room. 
I see a lot. Boy, how are you still in business, Augie? John, you know how I'm still in business. And I, I wasn't joking. I've been bankrupt for 12 years. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I just <laughs> I just enjoy making the beers. I, somewhere in your book, you talk about, look, if you just want this to be your hobby and you have the joy of making beer and can afford it, do that, right? Yeah, it's up to you. Yeah. I'm not telling you yeah. how to live your life, but right, for the rest right. of us that are trying to make a profit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no. Trust me, Carton Brewing, Carton Brewing very carefully has never made a profit. And every time we get close, Sean and I invent another 2% beer. Um, <laughs> yeah. Mindful money loss. Oh, white <laughs> truffles. Okay. Yeah. yeah, that's what's the problem with putting two kilos of white truffles you personally courier from Alba to Atlantic Highlands into a beer once every Christmas season? Anyway, go on. I love, but just, <laughs> just as a quick caveat, I loved when you were making that beer and I'd mention it to people and they'd be like, oh, okay, black truffles. And I was like, no, white truffles. Like, no, you, you mean black truffles. And I'm like, no, I know Augie Carton. I'm telling you. <laughs> <laughs> and then people who know are like, start to do the math and just the horror that would always creep across their face is Ooh. yeah delightful very expensive hobby anyway go on <laughs> 97 dollar 12 ounce pour yeah. that's right it's um, something so like a 28 dollar four pack of 12 ounce cans that i don't make a single dollar on that's insane yeah. But hey, yeah. like I beer, said, right? like I said, I could be quite the guest for your show, except that I refuse to learn. And I think your show is about lessons learned. Anyway, go on. That's the ultimate <laughs> point. Yeah. Uh, so mistake nine was give every fuck you have about online beer reviews. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. I gave entirely too many fucks about them. And wait, so you was... started right when I started. So, I, all right, finish 10. Yeah. And then, since John ask, isn't asking any questions, I'll I'm, jump I'm, in. I'm, that, I'm, I'm giving him the space. I'm getting ready, but yeah, all right. go for all it. All right, no, go ahead then. So, number he's, 10. He's furiously scribbling notes over there. <laughs> uh, mistake 10 don't figure out how to manage cash flow, which is very obvious, but very rarely happens. So, so let me ask you a question there because I don't really understand that, which is maybe the whole answer to why Carton has the troubles it has. But like every now and then when everything seems fine, I'll have to go to the, to the market and buy another 35,000 cans. And it always makes my bookkeepers and accountants and stuff lose their minds. And I keep looking at them asking how they haven't smoothed out that impact since it happens every three or four months. And they're like, you know what I mean? So is that what you mean by cash flow and that kind of thing? Like, know that you have these things happen sporadically and they will happen no matter what? Well, both. And so from a cash flow perspective, one is obviously financing. So you you should be contracting for the number of cans you need, play, planning to purchase them in ways that are going to, again, smooth out those bumps. But the the model and the plan also tells you no. And so at some point, if you say, oh, well, I need X and the budget doesn't call for it, then the answer is no, you don't make that fucking beer. Gotcha. If you want to be profitable. <laughs> right. Right. Well, I think I think even I want to be profitable. I just don't let the fact that I haven't learned how to do it in 12 years get in the way of making <laughs> yeah. tasty beers. I know um, you're kidding, but yeah, yeah. I'm going to pick on you. <laughs> no, um, I, I, I mean, I remember reading the book when it when it first came out, and I agree with a lot of these as well. And the 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 what what I think the industry faced very early on and especially during that growth when you all opened but certainly in the years preceding that was this sense of 
you know, there, there are a lot of cheerleaders and there's a lot of the sky's the limit and this David versus Goliath narrative and this relax, don't worry, have a homebrew mentality. And there were a lot of sunshine and rainbows that were fed brewers in the follow your passion type of thing without actually looking at the reality of running a small business or a business of any size. And I, I think it's easy when, you know, people start hearing, you know, how great it's going to be. And you see, you know, cool people like, you know, Sam or Ken Grossman or some of these other folks who, who have put the work in, um, you know, who are successful, but you're not really hearing about the blood, sweat and tears, and you're not hearing about the frustrations and the HR side of things and, and, and everything. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that a book like this is out there to, you know, hopefully convince the next generation to think a little bit more critically before getting into it. I think passion is awesome and passion is great and the artistry needs to be there, but you know, it's a, it's a fucking business at the end of the day. And if you don't have the head for it or the space for it, it's not, it's not going to work out. Um, I, I will say for your mobile canning needs, please call Brian Cass. Yeah, call Brian Cass directly. And yeah, if not, directly. He's gonna, if you he's need, gonna, if you need his if number, not, he's going to make us <laughs> call you for him. So that's right. Take, that's take right. that weight off us, since he keeps trying to get phone numbers out of me and John Hall. You want me like, to can green the glass? People. I'll can yeah. green glass. Yeah. Kennedy's <laughs> the guy who produces a show, guys. Kennedy's the guy who makes these contacts. Anyway, so so let me finish with this is usually the part where we do all our thank yous and we beg for money and we do all that. But ultimately, what we'd say is where do they get your beer and how do they visit you or where do they buy your book? So let's go with where do they buy your book. But more importantly, now that you've got a catalog of two years, if somebody was attempting to do what I did, right, instead of starting with Aaron Gore and going back in time, do you think there's an episode or two of how not to that you would suggest as the best place to dive in? Hmm. Like, is there insightful a insightful on? question. Shut up. No, I like I like that <laughs> only because if somebody asked us, we'd be like, I have no idea who's been on the show. Like, we are 400 search, plus episodes. Just and I'm search like, Jeff. Just search yeah. Jeff. Just search Jeff. <laughs> it usually yeah. happens around April and it's usually our best game. <laughs> it's hard for me to pick one because of the fact that each of them is so different and so clearly the answer would be depending on where you are in the industry or where you're planning to open there's going to be a relevant story for that whether that's brew pub seven state distribution or whatever i really liked the second self interview for the guys in atlanta that closed down just the they had done so many different things and touched so many different parts of the business that there was a lot to that one so mm -hmm. I definitely looked that one up and then, you know, near and dear to my heart are some of the farmhouse guys. But if you're not planning to open a farmhouse brewery, I don't know how much that would help you, but that's what I did. And so I, I really loved just the stories of art and passion that these guys put into it. And then it just gut wrenching to watch them collapse. You know, uh, I think, you know, what's funny is I would bet you if we really did have to come up with our top 10, nine of them would be farmhouse brewery related, but that may be because Justin's been doing a long con where he's just using us to do research for a book about New York state farmhouses. <laughs> and, I love you're and, just pulling out all the old gems tonight. Yeah. But what, who, so I think one of my favorite on our road shows recently were the guys with that farm in Virginia. Who was that again, John? Wheatland Springs. Loved that. John like, Bonnie. That Brown. was, that was an amazing episode. That wasn't amazing. You know yeah. what I mean? So, so as, as Kelly said, farmhouse. I was like, oh, we had great farmhouse episodes. And then I can't yeah. say and that. And not even without, in New York. Not even in New York. Without the Justin joke. 
Um, all right, man. Well, Kelly, thanks, dude. And thanks for doing what you're doing. John thinks it's very beneficial. And if I ever get the book back, I'll finish it. But I have been enjoying the podcast. So thank you for the podcast. Thanks for putting um, in the work beforehand. Yeah. Yeah. Dude, I, <laughs> hey, I listened to a couple. I really I know you did. This. I know you did. All right, y'all. Um, so, John Hall, you want to put on your Brian Cass impersonation and tell him how to yeah, give us five man. stars yeah. on Apple TV? And Are we on us, Apple you know, TV now? Yeah, you can 7, find this podcast as well as Kelly's podcast, uh, where all podcasts are found. And if you like the content, uh, give five stars because it helps the algorithm and it helps other people find uh, as well. Uh, we're able to do this show because of the the, the Patreons. So thank you, everybody, who uh, uh, donates uh, to send beers to our guest, Kelly. We'll have you back for a proper episode with the black glasses uh, soon enough. Uh, but <laughs> thanks to everybody for that. It's patreon.com slash steal this beer. Uh, if you're somebody who wants to advertise, because Kelly's got advertising, if you want to be a sponsor of this <laughs> show, uh, send us an email at steal this beer podcast at gmail.com. We'll entertain all offers. Yeah. Don't uh, get we're, mad we're, when we're, I say no. Yeah. Don't get mad but we're, but we'll no. entertain all offers is, uh, <laughs> uh you know, <laughs> <laughs> You're just trying, just so you know, um, Kelly, he runs an entire broadcast network of podcasts on a separate note, and he's yeah. just using us to fish for leads for them. He's 100%. Basically, he's basically just going to be like, Andy, call up the nut shaving company. They reached out to steal this beer. Oh, yeah. Um, remember when, remember when they were, uh, they were, they were coming after us. That was hard. the, but that was the only one I ever entertained because I so wanted the thieves to have to listen to you talk about manscaping. I was yeah. like, guys, I'm, I'm behind this one. Yeah, this is uh, weird. Hundred percent. Yeah, yeah there's somebody there a who whole advertises company. manscaping on podcasts, and they reached out like full court press. And you know, usually I'm just like, no, 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 no. But that one, I was might be a good joke. Yeah, I but I think they'll but, like the copy. But I'm definitely gonna make John talk about manscaping. <laughs> well, I think they only wanted to pay us in razors, and I was like, how many razors? <laughs> yeah, we're yeah. we're also we're also three pretty fair pretty northern european no beard guys so i mean yeah. i think a razor lasts me a whole year it didn't work anyway if you are a <laughs> non-shaving company uh that wants to reach out at steal this beer podcast at gmail.com that's also where you can send us letters because sometimes we have letters on this show uh that are insightful and that uh, spur on a 45-minute episode to becoming a 90-minute episode. So uh, send those in. Uh, we are also looking for um, uh, restaurant recommendations for our upcoming Rochester trip. Rochester! And... <laughs> it's going to happen uh, one of these days. So send us to that as well. And uh, yeah. All right, y'all. What else does he say? Oh, Get this is us. your part now. Yeah. Get at us. Thank you.